Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and last Lord's Day we began looking at this lengthy, it is a 202-word run-on sentence in Greek. Thankfully, our English translators have broken it up nicely and in a clean way for us, but it is a very full and very rich portion of Scripture in which the Apostle Paul is breaking forth. And he is explaining in the best way that he can all that God has done for us in Christ merely by grace. And um, B.B. Warfield, I've mentioned him already in this series, said at one point reflecting on verses 3 through 14 here in chapter 1 that it is better sung than it is read. That if we really want to grasp what Paul is saying, we have to have hearts that want to break forth in praise as the apostle is doing for all that God the Father has done for his people in Christ. So we are looking this morning again at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and we're going to focus especially this morning at verses 6 through 10, the middle section of this hymn of praise, this doxology, but I'm going to read for the sake of context beginning in verse 3 down. Again to verse 14. Here the Apostle Paul now says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, this week I saw something on YouTube that you don't often see, and it was so unusual that I took the time to watch the entirety of it. It was a young man who had grown up in a Mormon home, and when he was off on his Mormon pilgrimage as a young man, he said in his testimony that he was giving that he, he became overly zealous, and he thought he could convert an entire Protestant church to Mormonism, and so he made his way into a a Protestant evangelical church and thought he was going to convert everybody in there to um, Mormonism. And 
As he engaged the pastor, he said, the pastor drew him to this section of Scripture, and it was when he hit verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he was converted. And as he tells his testimony um, of growing up in a Mormon home and being converted as he tried to witness to these believers in this evangelical church, um, he said that my entire life I had been taught that God will accept me because of my works. My entire life it was pressed into me that my standing before God is based on what I do and that if I do well enough, God will accept me. And if I don't do well enough, God will not accept me. And he said, and that left an enormous burden on me. And when I heard from the scriptures that God had provided everything freely by his grace in Christ, and when I heard that he had made a full redemption through the blood of Christ, and it was merely by his grace, he said, I realized that that was what I was looking for my entire life. And what was interesting about his testimony is that he couldn't talk about this three or four sentences without breaking down in tears. And I thought, isn't that interesting? When was the last time you cried because you recognized God's grace to you? And the marvelous thing about this young man's testimony is he went on to talk about how he then went home and he, he shared the doctrines of grace with his siblings and they were converted. And then he shared it with his family, his mother and his father. And his mother who taught at Brigham Young, she was converted. And now they all go around and what they talk about is the grace of God in Christ. And what I realized as I listened to that and as we have been here in this great letter in which Paul spells out the grace of God so marvelously is that we need to hear more and more and more about the grace of Christ because deep down in us, we have two things going on constantly. One is a gnawing sense of condemnation because of the guilt of our sin, and then a sense in which we think, if I do well enough, God is going to accept me and if I don't do well enough, he won't. And so we live in that never enough quagmire in our standing before God. Now, I know that that's true for you because that is the common default of our sinful souls. And so what Paul is doing as he presses this great doxology and these truths on the Ephesians is he is wanting them to understand. Notice what he calls it here. Notice how he tags it at the end of verse 7. He wants them to understand the riches the riches of God's grace. It's almost as if Paul can't explain in human terms the greatness of what it means that God has saved you, justified you, adopted you, and is sanctifying you merely by the grace of Jesus. Um, I heard this week, and it was so very helpful a theologian I really respect saying, the difficulty of understanding grace is that grace can only be understood and measured by itself. Don't miss that. The difficulty of understanding grace is that grace can only be understood and measured by itself because there's nothing else like the grace of God in our human experience. Um, you go to work, if you work hard, you do well, you get promotions, you maybe get more salary. If you don't do well, you might get demoted, you might get fired. 
We live in a world in which merit is the basis of everything, and that's not how it works in God's kingdom because, as we've said, we are totally undeserving of God's blessings. In fact, we, we have demerited his blessings and his favor, and yet in Christ he has met our demerit, your great sin and my great sin, with the riches of his grace in Christ. The riches of his grace in Christ. Well, last Lord's Day, we looked at three blessings that Paul has already enumerated in this chapter. The first one is the blessing of election. The second one is the blessing of holiness or sanctification. And the third one we talked about was the blessing of adoption, that we have been made sons and daughters. Um, I maybe failed to point this out last week. There are actually seven spiritual blessings that Paul sets out in this chapter. We've looked at those first three, and this morning I want us to look at two more that we find in verses 6 through 10. I want us to consider this morning first the blessing of redemption in Christ, and then I want us to consider the blessing of restoration in Christ, the blessing of redemption in Christ and the blessing of restoration in Christ. We'll notice that there in verse 6, Paul's given the purpose. Why has God chosen to be gracious? Why has God decided he is going to bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Why? Notice verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God wants you to praise him for his glorious grace. He wants you to see the glory of what it means that he has freely bestowed these blessings on you, and he wants you in turn to do what Paul is doing, to to sing out, to praise him, to exult in him, to rejoice in him, to have the affections of your soul stirred in such a way that you can't help but break out in praising him. And yet, notice that the apostle comes back now at the end of verse 6 to something that he has woven in this entire doxology. Notice this. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, maybe the better translation is, with which he has graced us with grace in the beloved. In the Greek, it's a very difficult construct. With which he has graced us with grace in the beloved. Again, Paul is having a hard time explaining what has happened to you. If you're in Christ, if you've, if you've been savingly united to him. If, if God the Father chose you in him before the foundation of the world, he has, he has conveyed his grace upon you, grace upon grace upon grace, so that the, the only way that Paul can explain this, turn over to chapter 2, verse 7. Don't miss this. The only way Paul can explain this to help you really understand what God has done for you is that he finally says that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. It's as if he doesn't even know how to tell you the measure of the grace of God to you, that it is, and it is immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness to you. Why is that so important? Because if you're like me, We all have hard thoughts of God. We have have hard thoughts of God. When we sin, we think, when is he going to destroy me? Because our consciences condemn us. 
And while he is a just God, and while he is going to punish the wicked, for those in Christ, there is nothing but blessing and grace and kindness. And God reserves all the riches of his grace for you. Um, You know, this week it was advertised that the, the lottery, don't play the lottery, I'll just, it's just a total waste of time. I'll give you another reason in a minute, but, but it, was, it was said that it was up to like 1.2 billion. Somebody, want, somebody has the ticket right now, and, and they, they don't know who won. It's probably good. I hope that person never finds out, because I did read also this week how in almost every case in which someone has won the lottery, they've destroyed their lives. The wealth is overwhelming. They can't handle it. An inheritance gained hastily does not prosper in the end. Um, And yet here, Paul is saying there is something greater than winning the lottery. That is the riches of the kindness of the living God towards you. And far from ruining you, it builds you up. The riches of his grace continue to build you up, and they manifest themselves ultimately in the redemption that we have in Christ. This is really the center of this, this passage. Remember I noted, just let me remind you of this, there's a Trinitarian structure to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. The Father has chosen us unto holiness and adoption. Now, today, we're looking at the Son redeeming and then consummating, and then the Spirit guaranteeing the inheritance. All three members, and yet in the, the middle of this doxology, notice this, According to the riches of his grace with which he has blessed us or graced us with grace in the beloved. Now, why doesn't Paul here say again, with which he has blessed us in Christ? Because he says that, I said 11 ways, in different ways in this section, 11 times in him, in Christ. But here he says, in the beloved. And I don't think that the apostle is saying that as sort of a throwaway phrase or just to switch things up and make them fresh. I think Paul is honing us in on a very important aspect of our redemption. That how do I know the greatness of God's grace and love to me? I know it by looking on the one who has provided that redemption for me and recognizing that he is the eternally beloved Son of the Father. Now, it still may be lost on you why that's so important. Remember, um, God the Father speaks audibly three times in the Gospels, and all three times it has respect to his Son, and twice, once at the baptism, once at the transfiguration, you'll remember that the Father says from heaven, that voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved. This is the one my soul loves with infinite love and affection. The Father loves the Son with infinite love. We don't even understand what that means because our love is very finite. Our love is very conditional. Our love waxes and wanes. God's love is comprehensive, and what he sees in the Son is an object of infinite love that he places his affection on, and, and, and words can't even describe what it means that Jesus is eternally loved by his Father. 
Now, it's also important that Paul uses this term because he wants us to understand that only the Son could be the Redeemer. The Father couldn't be the Redeemer, and the Spirit couldn't be the Redeemer. Um, The 18th century New England Puritan Jonathan Edwards has a six-part series called God's Wisdom Displayed to the Angels. It's on uh, verse 10 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. And at the very beginning of that um, sermon series, he has this really magnificent section. I'd really encourage you to read it. God's Wisdom Displayed to the Angels. And at the very beginning, Edwards talks about why Christ had to be the mediator, and it could only be the Son. And, And of all the things that he says, listen to this. He says this. He says it was necessary that the Redeemer should be a person of infinite power and wisdom, that he should be a person infinitely dear to the Father in order to give an infinite value to his transactions in the Father's esteem. And the Father's love to him might balance the offense and the provocation of our sins. How can God not destroy us for the multitude of our sins because he has blessed us in his beloved? And his love for the Son outweighs the guilt of your sin. His love for his Son outweighs his hatred for sin. And and his love for the Son makes the Son a suitable object to satisfy his wrath, to forgive you and me, and to redeem us and make us accepted in him. Edwards goes on to say, listen to this, Edwards goes on to say, Christ is a fit person upon this account, therefore he is called the beloved. He has made us accepted in the beloved. He has bestowed his grace upon us in the beloved. Um, Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on this, said something along these lines, when I consider the cross and I consider God's infinitely beloved Son on the cross and the Father giving up his Son for me, I would almost think that the Father loved me more than he loved his Son. It almost seems as if he loves me more than he loves his Son. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, listen to this, says this, the father looks at his beloved as he endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. He did not spare the beloved, though he had loved him with that eternal love from all eternity, with the intensity of his divine being. He is the beloved. The father did not spare him. He spared him no suffering. That's why it's so important then when Paul talks about the blessing of redemption, he is going to choose the title, The Beloved, to talk about Christ. Let me also say this this morning. You know, if there are, is, and there's many problems with the Reformed Church, and I'm very Reformed, like really Reformed. So let me just put that out there. But one of the problems with the Reformed Church is that it can be very stoical, very cold, very cerebral, and very austere. And there is no place for that in the Scripture. When, when Paul talks about Jesus, he calls him the beloved. That is supposed to ignite in us a desire, a longing for him, a desire to see his beauty, a desire to be drawn to his excellencies, not just to have some head knowledge so we can sit around and argue about who's right and who's wrong and who's more careful, but that we would love Christ, that we would see in the Savior infinite loveliness, 
infinite loveliness in Jesus, no depth to the beauty of Christ. The Father sees it, and he wants you to see it. Well, notice that as Paul is talking about the beloved, he says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Notice that past tense, we have redemption. He's speaking about the history of salvation. He is saying, you already have been redeemed. There is a sense in which we're waiting for redemption, the, the, the restoration of our bodies and the resurrection. But Paul is going to press in very clearly that in the history of redemption, Jesus has already accomplished redemption. He has already redeemed us. The word redemption carries that idea of buying back. It was a a marketplace term that Jesus has bought us back from the power of sin and Satan, the judgment to come. He He has bought us back to himself by shedding his blood. Um, I don't know that we adequately think about ourselves as blood-bought people. If you're a Christian, Christ has purchased you. He has bought you back by shedding his blood. And his blood, and this is the marvelous thing, his blood is of infinite value because he is the infinite son. He is infinitely lovely. He is eternally lovely because he is the infinite and eternal Son of God. And that means when he sheds his blood on the cross and the Father sees that payment to buy you back, he sees an infinite price paid to forgive you and to redeem you and reconcile you. How how can I be assured that God has forgiven me all of my sins? I look at the blood of Jesus. I look at the blood of Jesus, and when I, by faith, see the Son of God nailed to the tree, my sins put on him, all of my sin placed on him, all of it imputed to him, every sinful thought and word and action, every selfish motivation, all imputed to Jesus, and I see his bloodshed, I can know that the Father has accepted me, forgiven me, and reconciled me, because Christ has paid an infinite price for your sins. How do I know? And this is the most important question you could ask. How do you know that all of your sins really are forgiven? Well, you know it because Christ has shed his blood as an infinite payment to cover the multitude of your sins. Uh, The psalmist at one point says that he considers his sins more numerable than the hairs of his head. And then you know what he says? He says elsewhere that God's thoughts are more toward us than can be counted. How, How is that possible? Because of the blood of Jesus. Because the Father has seen the blood and he has accepted us in him. Listen to this. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin sorry for so many quotes, but this one's so important. He says, God the Father is so pleased with his beloved, that he accepts us in him. And listen to this. And so now that we actually sin, he can patiently bear with us and please himself in Christ. Why does God not treat you according to your sins and does not punish you according to your iniquities because he treated Christ according to your sins? And punished him according to 
your iniquities. And so Paul can say in this magnificent verse, we have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You know how I know that that's the most important thing that you need to believe and embrace and press into this morning? It's because there's this account in the Gospels where Four friends bring their paralytic friend to Jesus, and Jesus is preaching in a house, and they can't get through to him, and so they start pulling the tiles up, and I had a friend in seminary who said, you know, whenever you're doing a Bible study in a house, there's always distractions, you know, phone rings, baby cries, somebody comes through the roof, and and let's, I thought it was, uh, pin the blue ribbon on that guy in seminary. I was like, that's a great analogy. And, and, and they led him down to Jesus, and, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And, and what the man is thinking about is, I need my physical mobility back. That's, that's the greatest need that that paralytic feels at that moment. But Jesus realizes there is something greater than that that he needs. And so even though Jesus will go on to heal him, he says to that man, son, your sins are forgiven. Because he recognizes that more than physical healing, that man's greatest need is to have his sins forgiven. And I am here to tell you this morning because your life is very short and my life is very short. And the greatest need that we have is to know that our sins are forgiven. And so Paul would say to you this morning, if you are looking to Christ by faith, if you are in him, he has already provided redemption for us, the forgiveness of our sins. Paul is making forgiveness of sins the very epicenter of the gospel. There is more than just that. There is the power of sin broken. There is adoption into God's family. There is sanctification. But this is the center. If we do not have our sins forgiven, we have nothing. And Paul says, in the beloved, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of our grace. Now, notice what he does here. Notice this. Paul wants to heighten our understanding of what God has done for us. And so now he says, notice this verse 8, which he lavished on us. He's lavished grace on you. When you think about God's grace to you, do you think about him being lavish? in just continuing to pour his grace out on you. And notice Paul says, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That means that if you're a Christian, that you know more than the greatest unbelieving scholar in the world because you know Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that because of the gospel, God has made known to you and has lavished on you the riches of his grace in all wisdom and understanding. So that while I may not know everything, I do know the one who knows everything. And so I can know something about everything because of Christ. And that is so important. And Paul is going to press this in in chapter 3 because the danger, the, the, the ever-present danger, is for you to be moved away from Christ to some other form of knowledge or intelligence or wisdom or philosophy that will ultimately keep you from Christ. And what Paul is saying is know all the wisdom of God, all the understanding for all of life. Think about this. There are 8 billion people on this planet, and most of them don't even know why they're here or who they are. 
and they can't make sense of life. And God, in his wisdom and grace, has said, I am going to make known to my people through the redemption that I've provided in Christ all of the mystery of my wisdom and understanding, making known my will to them. Um, God's mystery, which Paul speaks about in chapter 3, was hidden from ages and generations. And yet, in the new covenant in Christ, he says, I have made known all of my wisdom and understanding to you. Um, You know, I would even argue that the New Testament calls Jesus the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. Um, Paul will say in Colossians 2, that, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. So that if you want to understand anything in this world, you can only understand it in relationship to the eternal Christ, who has redeemed you by his blood. Now that is meant to hold your feet firm in the gospel. That's what Paul is doing. Paul is trying to, to, to nail your feet down at the foot of the cross. And to understand this is where wisdom and understanding is. This is where God's eternal mystery is made known. This is where God has fulfilled his promises. We read this morning, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Listen to this. John Calvin said this, We are wiser in our ignorance than all the wise men of the world when we do not take it upon ourselves to know anything beyond where God's word guides and governs us. We are wiser than all the wise men of the world, because God has revealed to us the mystery of Christ. Isn't that marvelous? And he chose to do it for you by grace, freely by his grace, out of the riches of his grace. You didn't do anything to gain that. You didn't do anything to merit it. There was nothing about you that God said, I see something in him and I'm going to do this because I see that. That's why Paul roots this in the election of grace in verse 4. Well, I want us to consider now, secondly and very briefly, restoration in Christ. Notice that in verses 9 and 10, he says, He has made known to us the mystery of his will as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. What, if I asked you this morning, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? I would hope everybody in here would say the forgiveness of my sins, because that would be the right answer. And maybe some of you would say the defeat of Satan. That would also be a correct answer. But I wonder how many of you would say when Jesus hung on the cross and shed his blood on the cross, he was securing the restoration of all things in the consummation. You see, when Jesus shed his blood, he did more than just redeem individuals. He secured the restoration of all things in the hereafter. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved. The Bible is very clear about that. But what it does mean is that what Christ accomplished on the cross has a cosmic dimension to it. That what he did in bridging heaven and earth, in in being the mediator between God and man, what he did when he shed his blood in securing the consummation is that he secured the restoration of what was lost in the sin of Adam. 
What did Adam lose? He didn't just lose fellowship with God. He didn't just bring a breach in relationships on a horizontal plane that, that all of heaven and earth, as it were, the visible and the invisible world were, were torn apart because of Adam's sin. And what Jesus, as the last Adam, does is he says, I am going in myself to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth. I remember reading as a very young Christian, a Scottish Presbyterian theologian who said, when I read this verse, I like to envision in the consummation Adam and Gabriel embracing because of the blood of Jesus. You know, the, the, the elect angels, as the Bible calls them, they, they never sin. They don't need redemption. But they do need to be secured in God's plan of restoration. So there is a very real sense where the blood of Jesus even secures the restoration of redeemed humanity and the unfallen angels for all eternity. That's an amazing thought. Well, Jesus doesn't redeem angels He does secure the unfallen angels in holiness, and he secures it in such a way that there is going to be a glorious display in the hereafter of all that Jesus has accomplished. And what I'm telling you right now is so inadequate to stir up your minds and hearts to anticipate what that is going to be like when we are all in the presence of the Lamb who was slain the angels and the archangels, the general assembly of the saints that have made perfect in glory, all of our loved ones who have gone before us and everyone who will be caught up with Christ when he comes again. And in that day, there is going to be this glorious picture. And by the way, I have heard well-meaning Christians say, you know, do you think heaven's going to get boring? No, I absolutely don't think heaven's going to get boring. And if you think heaven's going to get boring, it's because you have way too low a view of joy. Because what Jesus is doing in restoring all things is doing something more glorious than what Adam would have had if he had never fallen. This is why Augustine called it the Felix Culpa, the blessed fall. Because what Christ does is something more glorious because when we are part of that restoration, if you're in him, you are going to be part of that. When we are part of that on the last day, we are going to see something of the riches of God's grace in the beloved in renewing all things and making them even better than they were at the beginning. That's what you have to look forward to if you've been redeemed by Christ. I want to ask you this morning as you consider these things and you consider your needs and when maybe you consider that gnawing sense of guilt in your conscience, I want to ask you, are you looking, are you looking to the blood of Christ? That's, that's the fountain. That's the source. That's, that's, the, that's the safe place. Um, you can never look by faith to the blood of Jesus enough. Every time we sin, we go right back to the foot of the cross. And we know that God has accepted us because he has given his beloved son in our place for our sin. Isn't that marvelous? Um, If you've never come to Christ, 
I would ask you this morning, why would you not come to one who is so rich in grace, who has already provided redemption? He will do for you in forgiving your sins what you can never do for yourself, and he'll do it all by his grace. He's already accomplished it. And then I would ask you this morning, if you were a believer, are you hoping in the restoration to come? Are you longing to be part of that great company of those who have been redeemed and reconciled? That's, that's what ought to drive our Christian life. I want to leave you with this this morning. If I am stagnant in the Christian life, if I am stagnant in service in the Christian church, if I am joyless, if I am anxious, there is a very good chance, and I know this from experience, that it's because I am not hoping in the world to come that Christ has already secured through his shed blood on the cross. So that if I'm hoping in this world, I will never be animated to know that joy and fruitfulness of living the Christian life in light of that in the here and now. Um, I hope this morning that you will be encouraged and that you'll be prompted to look at the Lord Jesus as the beloved Son of God, that you'll see in Him the Father's delight, that you'll see in Him the greatness of His sacrifice, that you'll see in Him the sufficiency of His blood, and that you'll see in Him all that He has already accomplished for what he's going to do in the consummation. That is all for you. You are part of that if you belong to him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we feel our inadequacy when we consider the greatness of what you have done for us in your beloved Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the infinitely loved and lovely Son of God. We thank you that you are of such a value that your blood is an infinite and eternal satisfaction to atone for our sins. We thank you, Father, that you look on your Son when you look on us. We thank you that where we have sinned, your grace abounds all the more because of Christ. And so we do pray that you would make us to know these things, to believe them, We pray that you would make us to know that our sins have been forgiven, and we pray that you would make us to long to be in your presence and to see the full fruition of what you have accomplished on the cross. And so, Lord Jesus, would you do this for us? Would you stir up in us a greater longing to be with you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.